you. And if you're here for the first time and need some kind of help or info or anything, if there's anything we can do for you, let us know. Because you know what we are, don't you? You, you know what we are. We're the, we're the didn't go out of town people this weekend. <laughs> so we've got to stick together. All right. Um, no, we're, we're very glad you're here. And if you're visiting... What I'm doing this morning is a little bit unusual. I like to do uh, series. I like to preach through books of the Bible or a section of the Bible for um, the whole fall and the winter. We went through the last book of the Bible, Revelation, and then we did something a little bit more topical for a good bit here of the spring about just the habits, uh, what we call the habits of love, these activities of the Christian life, things like um, praying and reading the Word, studying the Scriptures and giving money and evangelism and community and all those kinds of things. But um, a few years ago, just this Sunday before Memorial Day, you know, I know that technically summer doesn't start until uh, late June, but, you know, the way we we actually do life, it it starts pretty soon after Memorial Day. And uh, a few years ago, I preached on a doxology this Sunday before Memorial Day, and I just have kind of made that a standard practice, so we don't have to do that, but I'm going to keep doing it till till I decide not to. Um, and if you don't know what a doxology is, a doxology is where... Um, well, look, here's a distinction. At the end of our worship service, we have a benediction. And a benediction is where God, through, through someone speaking, pronounces blessing on His people. But a doxology is His people pronouncing a blessing upon Him. And I don't mean that like we're doing something for Him. But it's just these places uh, in the Old and the New Testament where you see God's people say... You know, like, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Just praise God for who He is and what He's done. And I want to look at really what we could call uh, a doxology. We could also call it Christology. Christology is the theology of Jesus Christ. And I really just want to look at one verse about Jesus. I'm going to read the context around it, but we're really just going to focus in on, on one verse. Before I read it, I want you to think about this. Um, we just if you've been around here, you know that we don't follow the, the church calendar in great detail. We sort of do what most Protestant churches do. We kind of hit the, the biggies of uh, Easter and Christmas and, you know, Mother's Day. But um, I'm kidding. <laughs> kidding, kidding, kidding. Now, we love our Easter's. We love our Christmases. And one of, the, one of our young church's young traditions is that the first Sunday night of Advent... We have lessons and carols, and that's a, um, that's a great Christian tradition from the um, early 1900s. It's, it's just a service. Hope you can come. Early advertisement. It's, uh, it's a service, and it's nothing but Scripture texts and, uh, and hymns and songs. Well, the one that we always end on, again, this is not legislated by the Bible, but it's just how we do it, how a lot of churches do it, is to make the last hymn that we sing... Oh, come all ye faithful. And on that one, not just the choir sings, but the whole, the whole room sings, Oh, come all ye faithful. And there's a bunch of verses to Oh, come all ye faithful. The ones that most people know are just a few of the verses. But we always sing one that's a little less known. And here, here's how the verse starts. And it's talking about Jesus, and it says, True God of true God, light from light eternal. True God of true God and light from light eternal. And that language 
is pretty much borrowed from something that you're going to be invited to say in a few minutes from the Nicene Creed. The Nicene Creed is an ancient Christian creed. It's actually older than the Apostles' Creed. And something that's said about Jesus Christ is that He is very God of very God and light of light. Now, here's my question. Especially if you're a Christian, and not everyone here is, but especially if you're a Christian, especially if you've been at this for years, do you know what those phrases mean? Because it may be that just from hearing that kind of thing, saying that kind of thing, singing that at Christmas, that you feel like you know what it means and that we don't know what it means. And, and here's my hope. I hope that just after you know, us parking... This is what the Bible calls meditation, is just to park in biblical truth and just marinate in it. That after we do this for a few minutes, that, that that's going to hit you in a way that it's never hit you before. This is, uh, this is some doxology, some Christology before summer. Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. We don't know who wrote Hebrews. It's written to, as you could tell probably from the name, um, a group of people who are ethnically Jewish, and they've been exposed to the, the content of the gospel... Some have made professions of faith, but now they're reconsidering about maybe just going back to straight-up Judaism. And the writer is appealing to them not to do that. And here's the way this, this letter, this appeal begins. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets... But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Amen. Let's pray together. Father God, we ask now that whatever our preoccupations are or if we come here in boredom, or if we come here in great fatigue or if we're greatly discouraged and run down by our, our family situation or our financial situation or we're, or we're apathetic or we're indifferent, please, please help us. Please help us to hear what you are saying. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. A family member... Um, sent me this book not long ago. The name of the book is Almost Christian. came out a few years ago. It's by um, a writer, an academician named Kenda Creasy, <clears throat> excuse me, Kenda Creasy Dean, Almost Christian. And uh, the interesting thing about this book is this, this was not put out by a Christian publisher. This is put out by Oxford University Press, which publishes, you know, stuff about 
just really the world of knowledge and, and uh, typically academic. Kenda Creasy Dean is on faculty at Princeton Theological Seminary. And here's what the book is about. It's about the spiritual life of teenagers in the United States. And she took some of the research done by somebody that I've actually quoted in here before, a sociologist named Christian Smith who did an in-depth study of the same thing, the spiritual life of teenagers. And, and I've mentioned this before, but let me mention it again because she uses this. Uh, Christian Smith, all this research, all this meeting with teenagers, all these interviews, and he said that overall the dominant teenage spiritual belief is what he called moralistic therapeutic deism. And that phrase has gotten picked up by lots of different people. I see it here and there. Here's, here's a little synopsis of moralistic therapeutic deism. If you're visiting, my whole sermon's not going to be this jargony, okay? I just don't want you to already be beginning a nap. I want you to hang in there with me. In a few points, there's a God who exists, who created and orders the world and watches over life on earth. Uh, number two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and by m most world religions. The central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. God is not involved in my life except when I need God to resolve a problem. Good people go to, to heaven when they die. Now, uh, this, this woman, Dr. Dean, she took, that, she took that finding and then she began to kind of, I guess, sort of, if not poke holes, just to try it out. So she began setting that before teenagers and saying, is that where you're coming from? And by the way, now you, you, you may not have any teenagers in your family, but this is extremely important because this is the rising adult generation, right? And she got different reactions. Here's, here's what one teenage girl uh, wrote to her. She said, I'm not sure if they're trying to say, the people who came up with moralistic therapeutic deism, deism, she said, I'm not sure if they're trying to say I have no faith or what, but that's what it sounds like. If having faith means I have to buy into the Old Testament fire and brimstone, step out of line and be smoted, that was all hyphenated, step out of line and be smoted business, well then I guess I don't. I'm more inclined to believe in a God that understands that I'm imperfectly made, that I mess up, and sometimes even pray for what isn't ultimately in my best interest. I don't believe in a feel-good God. God is who you have when everything and everyone else seems to be lost to you, when there's nothing else left. God is there to guide you through the tough times. Now, here's what a couple of others. Uh, Tom, a 17-year-old lifelong Presbyterian, lifelong, 17 years, uh, Presbyterian, wondered, doesn't the church want us to treat people fairly, be happy to solve our own problems and get along? Um, Sean, a sophomore in the church youth council, uh, exclaimed, do I believe that God wants people to be nice and fair to each other? Yeah, I'd stake my life on that. Now, again, that's just, a little, that's just a little smattering. But the reason I wanted to read that is to say what they're bumping up against is what, in some ways, everyone in this room is bumped up against. And it's, what is God like? You know, I, I, I suspect at some point all of us have started a sentence with, well, I just think that God, and we really, we're, we're not deriving that from a biblical text or a theological principle necessary. We're just kind of saying, this is just what's in my gut. This is, 
whatever my official theology is, this is my real theology on the inside. I just think that God... And we've heard people say that. How do you know what God is like? Now, someone could give the easy answer and say, well, just look at what the Bible says about Him. And as a church, we would agree. But here's the thing. Sometimes you get radically different signals from Scripture. In fact, think about this. Sometimes when Jesus would tell a parable, you know, a story to get these huge things across, when He would tell a parable and there's a God figure, the God figure might be a king who's facing his enemies and he's settling accounts and maybe people are being killed. And that's the God character. But then in another one, a famous one, I mentioned this last week, the God character is the one who sees this son who has dishonored him and acted shamefully and embarrassed the family. And he sees him down the road and he does what a first century Jewish man would never do. He hikes up his tunic and he runs down the road and he embraces him and celebrates his return. And that's the God character. What is God like? And with that question in mind, I, I want to park in verse 3 of Hebrews 1. And I'm just going to use the language of this verse to be the sermon points, okay? The first point is this. Jesus Christ is the radiance of the glory of God. And the second point is that Jesus Christ is the exact imprint of God's nature. Okay, Christ is the radiance of the glory of God. He's the exact imprint of His nature. Now, let's look at this first one. Jesus Christ, the writer to Hebrews, and this is right out of the chute, the beginning of this appeal to folks who've heard the gospel, but they're thinking about walking away from it. Jesus Christ is the radiance of God's glory. Think about this. A word that we overuse is the word countless. You know, we'll say things like, I have sent countless emails to so-and-so, complain, and that means like three. Okay, th- three is not countless. That's very countable. But if there's something in our life that, that I would say could qualify as countless besides, you know, molecules or something like that, would be the stars. Now, I don't believe there's an infinite number of stars. The creation is finite. But from our vantage point, they are countless. I mean, if you, if you go out away from the city, let's say on a, on a just cloudless night, no, no street lights or anything, and, and you, just besides the stars you can see, if it's really clear, you see the Milky Way, and the Milky Way represents billions of stars, and that's just one galaxy. You know, it's, it's the, it just swallows your mind. But really... And at one level, that's an experience. You're seeing them. Maybe you can, can you even see it twinkle and it makes you feel a certain way. But there's, there's one star that we really experience. And, of course, it's the sun. What do we mean that we experience it? it? Well, at one level, it just means that not only can we see it and it's closer, but we can feel it. And it actually affects our lives. I was thinking about this this week, meditating about radiance in the sun. I was thinking about the fact that in the colder months, Jake and I both park further from the building. And, and it hit me why we're doing that is because in the winter months, the sun takes a while to crest the building. And so when we come in, we park it up higher on the hill to get as much sunlight as we can. Because if you have to go back out, you want, the, you, know, you want your car to be warmer. Now you go like, okay, Brian, we know, we know that 
that principle. We've got that. But think about this. The sun is 93 million miles away. It's 93 million miles away. And this is such a great weekend. It's overcast now, but what a great weekend to be talking about the sun because it's been like a radiant weekend. 93 million miles away, you can have your hand in the shade and you can stick it out and you can feel the difference from 93 million miles away. What are you feeling? Radiance. Radiance is not a shaft. It's not a beam. It's not a laser. It's just the fullness of light going out in all the directions. The light that goes to the earth would be like a laser compared to what all the sun puts out, but it sends that out as a fully orbed star in every direction. But here's the thing. You could put your hand out and feel... Or you could be out on the beach and get sunburned and think you're experiencing the sun. At one level you are, but at one level you're not. If you experience the sun, you'd be vaporized. We sort of get used to the sun, like, yeah, the sun. The sun is unbelievable. I mean, we... I guess just from the familiarity of it, we forget that the sun is a giant ball of death fire. You know, that could vaporize not just us, it could vaporize the entire solar system. Um, if, you know, if it's been cold and you're going to go somewhere warm and you're thinking, I want to experience the sun, well, strictly speaking, no, no, you don't. Because if you're vaporized, no more vacation. <laughs> right? What you want to experience is, is the radiance of the sun. Now, with that in mind, think about the language that the writer to Hebrews is using. Jesus Christ is the radiance of the glory of God. If I were to ask you, do you want to have an experience with the glory of God? Well, it's going to depend on the person, right? But a lot of people would say, yes, I I don't want to just learn facts about God. I want to have an experience with the glory of God, but here's, here's what we might, you know, we might not be thinking about. People who had an experience directly with the glory of God in the Bible died or were at least terrified. When, when Mount Sinai was just an, uh, 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 when it was just a mountain in the eastern hemisphere like any other mountain and then It changed. Why did it change? Mount Sinai changed because the glory of God came down on the mountain. And this this group of Israelites who had been primed for this, who were told that we're going to meet with God, He's going to give us His law, that when they saw that, and not really saw Him, they just saw the manifestation of His presence. And when they heard Him, they begged Moses, you go talk to Him. We'll do whatever he says, but if we hear that voice anymore, it is going to kill us. Well, one of the things that God did tell him to do was to build the tabernacle. You know, before you get in the promised land, you're going to be living in tents. Well, make me a tent to be in the middle of all your tents, and this is where you'll worship me. He tells them exactly how to build it, so they build it exactly that way. And when they consecrate and dedicate the tabernacle, the glory of God comes not just on but into the tabernacle, and it terrified the people. The priest couldn't be in it because of the glory of God. Do I want an experience with the glory of God? Yes, but 
Do I want him in the fullness of his glory? No, or it would be my undoing. When the prophet Isaiah was already a prophet, believed in God, served God, spoke for God, when he saw a vision of the glory of God, it terrified him. And he said, I'm just utterly undone, and I don't know what to do. And I'm thinking about my sin, I'm thinking about my family's sin and my my culture's sin. How do you have an experience with the glory of God without it destroying us? And the writer says, it's through the person of Jesus Christ. Now, all analogies push the limits, okay? But as is the Son in its power and its glory, both to bless and to destroy... The fullness of the sunshine is Jesus Christ. If the fullness of the Son is God the Father, the sunshine is God the Son. Now, why is that important? Um, let, let, me, let me say a word to the person who's here who would say, I don't know, but I'm pretty sure that I'm not a Christian. And as, as we try to say again and again, we love that you're coming, and we want you to keep coming. But let me, let me talk to you a little bit more directly right now. It may be that you're at a place in life where you're going, okay, I know that there's more to life than just materiality. I know that. I know that there's more to life than just the natural. I do believe in, in some sense that there is a God, but whatever he or she or it is... <clears throat> Uh, I don't know exactly how to think about he, she, or it, but I would like to be, I would like to be hooked up and right and communicating with God. We would say, all right, wonderful. That's what we were made to do. But how is it you're going to approach that? Because here's what the scriptures say. Um, you know, I mentioned before that doxologies are places in the Bible that say, Blessed be God just because of who He is. If you're not a Christian, I want you to hear this. Well, I want everybody to hear this, but I, I'm, I'm talking to you. Um, there's a doxology pretty late in the New Testament. It's in one of the Apostle Paul's letters. And he says this. He, he speaks about God being the God who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. Now, that's a strange way to praise God. Here's this God that we love and we bless, and you can't even approach Him. His light is unapproachable. And the rest of the Scriptures would agree with that. If you're not a Christian, I want to make a twofold appeal to you. Number one, do not approach God on your own terms. My appeal to you is is that you not say, you know what, I think I'm going to have a relationship with God and I'm just going to start having a relationship with God. That would be like having a relationship with the Son, S-U-N. But in the Bible, you've got this thing called the gospel, the good news. And you you know what the good news is? The good news is that when we could not approach this light, what's the rest of the sentence? The light approached us. That's what the first chapter of the Gospel of John says. 
that the one who is light approached the world that he made. And he came to it. And just because he approached it didn't mean that everybody wanted to hear it. John says, some people said no thanks. But, you know, my first appeal is don't go to the light on your own terms. But my second appeal would be this, that the light has come to us in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the radiance of the glory of God. Does that mean he's safe? Absolutely not. You know, there's the famous statement in the Chronicles of Narnia about the, the, the lion Aslan, where these children are just for learning about Aslan the lion for the very first time. They're from England. They don't know about Aslan. And they ask this talking beaver, is he safe? And, and Mr. and Mrs. Beaver say, no. No, he's not safe. He's good. He's a lion. Did you not get the memo about, about lions? He's not safe. He's good. Is Jesus Christ safe? No, he's fully God. But he's good. I mean, you know, for people that do celebrate the, the church calendar more closely, there's a whole Sunday that celebrates this thing called the Transfiguration. When three apostles, Peter, James, and John, went up on a mountain with Jesus, and they know he's special, they follow him, they believe that he's, they believe he's the Messiah, but all he's ever looked like to them is a Jewish peasant, and they're with him, and he's standing on this mountain... And all of a sudden, according to Matthew, his face began to shine like what? The sun. Is he pulling a parlor trick sort of miracle to go like, watch this. And I can do this, you know, and there's another miracle. No. He's pulling back the veil, you might say, of his incarnation for them just to get a little glimpse through the door of who he has always been. And when we studied Revelation, we got to the first chapter, when John, who was up on that mountain and saw the transfiguration, when John sees the risen Christ, he says that his face shone like the sun in its fullness. That's who he's... He's no less God than God the Father. But as one who has always been fully God and who becomes fully man, he radiates the glory of God so that sinners like you and I can have a relationship. We can come near to the glory of God which should undo us and destroy us. And if you're here and you're thinking about this spirituality thing, here's my appeal. The reason we keep harping on Jesus Christ is because no one else is the radiance of God's glory. We want you to have an experience with God's glory. We want to have an experience with God's glory. We want the whole world to, but we can't do it on our terms. It's got to be through Jesus. Second thing the text says is that he's the exact imprint of God's nature. Um, I love when I get to preach on just a few words because then I kind of get to get my study and roll up my sleeves and like look up what it says in the Greek or the Hebrew. You know, it's kind of harder to do that when it's 30 verses long. So I kind of roll up my sleeves and I went, okay, we're going to find out what in Greek this whole thing about exact imprint. It's the only place in the New Testament that says that. Couldn't compare it to anything else. Okay, great. But what I found out was we pretty much know what this means because of the verb it comes from. The term is a, is a noun. It comes from the verb to, to engrave. 
and it's the picture, picture like of a, of a ruler back in the day who had a, a sig signet ring, a seal. And the seal would be on the ring, and you know, you pour like the dark red wax on the parchment or the letter, and then while it's still wet, you, you make the seal. Think about this. The, the term seal refers to both. The term stamp refers to both. The ring is the seal that makes the impression, and the impression is the seal. Now, that's the kind of terminology that the writer is using. God, we could say God the Father, all that He is, is the seal, the stamp. And Jesus Christ is the perfect imprint of who He is and what He's like. What is the wax? It's His humanity. It, for, for human beings with finite capabilities and finite minds and finite feelings, if you want to, to know with our limited understanding what is God like, it's the God-man what is God the Father like? Can any of us really know what God the Father is like? What God is not somewhat like, what He's exactly like, is the person of Jesus. And that is something that the Scriptures love to talk about. Um, think about this. In, in John, we keep coming back to John. This, I think these themes were big with Him. Glory, light, divinity. John records in chapter 14, this is the night that Jesus is going to be arrested and he's going to be crucified the next day. He's talking to his disciples and he says, I'm going to leave. And where I'm going, you know the way and you can follow me. And the apostle Thomas, doubting Thomas, says to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus says, I am the way and the truth. In the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. And now, we're used to that verse, but think about what he says next. He says, If you had known me, you would have known that you had seen the Father. And you can almost picture the apostles looking at each other like, Did you see God? Because I didn't see God. Did y'all see God when I was when I stepped out for lunch? Did y'all see God? Because I haven't seen him. And another apostle named Philip says, Show us the Father, Lord, and it's enough. And the response of Jesus is unbelievable. You know what he said? He said, Have I been with you all this time and you don't know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. That is exactly what Hebrews 1 is saying. That when you see Jesus Christ, you're not just seeing the most obedient man who ever lived or the man who exhibited the greatest sacrificial love in the history of humankind. No, you are seeing the very character and nature of the living God. The Apostle Paul uses this kind of language. He'll talk about Jesus Christ being the image of God. His, the exact image and imprint of what God is like. Think about how much that can help people like us. 
when you look at tragedy and death and you, and you wonder, what does God think about that? Okay? Because if I'm... If, I'm going to try to stay here. I'm going to try to stay within the parameters here. If the parameters are take the Bible as authoritative truth, okay, I'm going to try to play by the rules. I'm going to try to take it as authoritative truth. It's telling me that God controls everything, and I'm looking at this footage of all these people's homes devastated in Oklahoma, and I'd like to know what God thinks about that. Because it seems like this, you know, weather bomb went through this region, and there's all these all this footage of people weeping, and that He's just kind of just. God, I just am not, well, how does God feel about that? And then you read something like the Gospels and you see Jesus coming to the tomb of his very close friend Lazarus. And he knows in about three minutes he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. And there's about to be the greatest celebration that town has ever seen. He knows he's going to do that. And he stands there and he weeps. Why does he weep if he knows he's about to undo it in just a few minutes? Because death is bitter. And his friend died. And he's looking at the ripple effects through that man's family and through the community. And he's feeling what people feel in tragedy, even when he's about to undo it. What are you seeing about God there? God is not indifferent to those who are hurting in tragedy And it is the intent of God to undo tragedy one day. But how do you hold those things together? You look at Jesus in his ministry. John again. His first miracle is what? He, He takes down the Roman Empire. I mean, this is the Messiah. It should be something big. His first miracle is he's at a young couple's wedding that no one knows. No one knows their names. And they've run out of wine. And we could say, you know what, in the cosmic scheme of things, who cares? Jesus cares. And he turns a whole bunch of water into a whole bunch of very good wine and just sort of sends their social capital through the roof. And John says in chapter 2 that Jesus did this to manifest his glory. What does God think about the rich? Look at Jesus. What does God think about poverty? Look at Jesus. What does God think about people who use religion for financial gain rather than to really serve others? Who is Jesus Christ? He is the answer to those questions. Um, let me speak now to Christians. Again, I think this is applicable to anybody, but, but I'm speaking to Christians. I want you to think about what that means not only for who you will be, but for who you are. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 13 that at the end, now these are his words, not mine. Matthew 13, 43, that a day will come when the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Do you hate your body? Do you hate your health? Do you hate your sadness? Jesus says that what I have, one day you will have. 
Now, it's not saying that we'll be God. We will always be creatures. But what He has, we will have. Because He shines, one day, and C.S. Lewis wrote some beautiful stuff about this, we will shine. We'll still be human, but we'll shine in fullness of life and vitality and joy and health like the sun. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, says that people like us, because of the work of Jesus, and I would never say this if the Bible didn't say it because it sounds like heresy. People like us will partake of the divine nature. Will we be God? No, we'll never be God. But because we're united to one who's fully God, we will. It's like we will be brought into the family dynamic and love that exists within the Trinity itself. No filters. That's who we'll be. But what about what you are? And I want to end with this. Um, I, I, I just, I'm just struck by the fact that the recurring conversation that I'm having with my friends and my peers is that this is harder than I thought it would be. And, you know, this is everything from uh, one's own health to work to all the other demands outside of work to family to being a townsperson to the realities of church, what's going on behind the veil, that this is harder than I thought it would be. And, you know, a lot of you right now, I would say the majority of you, are slogging it through the day and you feel the effects of a fallen world. I'm fallen, the people around me are fallen, the world is fallen, and it just wears us down. And when it wears you down, and you don't just, not, you're not just physically worn down, but you just feel worn down. You feel ground into powder. When you feel that way, you, that's when you can really begin to wonder, does God care? And you know what my appeal to you would be? When is the last time you read one of the Gospels all the way through? It's not, it's not a guilt trip, and don't show your hands. I'm just asking. When is the last time you read a Gospel all the way through? Are you living off the fumes of things you learned about Jesus quite a while ago? Because you can feel like you know something when really you're just kind of in proximity to it. You know, lifelong Americans, someone could ask us, how does a bill become a law? And you feel like, yeah, I've been watching the news my whole life. I know that. And then you don't know. And you're trying to recall the schoolhouse rock thing about, and I'm sitting here on Capitol Hill, and I'm off to commit. I don't know. I, 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 can't, I have no idea how a bill becomes a law. It can be like that. Who is God? Who is Jesus? What did he say, and what did he do? You know what? Again, this is not... A, a command. I have no authority to give this command. This is an appeal. What if between now and Tuesday morning you read the Gospel of Mark all the way through, the shortest Gospel of the four, and just not from memory, not from a lesson you heard way back, but just directly you heard and saw and breathed in, this is who he is. This is what he's like. This is what he said, and this is what he did. Because here's the beautiful thing. What you'll be seeing 
in the way he responds to the hurting and the poor, to women, to the disenfranchised, to self-righteousness, to religiosity. What you'll be seeing is exactly who God is. And that's what we were made to do. We weren't made to be squeaky clean attractive people who hopefully one day raise squeaky clean attractive children. We were created to know God, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom He has sent. Jesus Christ is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, what a great, great God you are, but in our finiteness, in our mortality, in our discouragement, in our fatigue, uh, even in our sin, in things that we don't want to let go of, things that we love that we don't need to love, things that we love that you hate, things that we hate that you love, that because of that, we are unwilling to see you. Because of that, we don't know who, what to think about you. Would you, in a way that we've never seen it before, would you show us yourself in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ? Lord Jesus, we, we praise you as the one and only Savior. We praise you as the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And we pray in your name. Amen.